In recent years, a number of Christian books have graced best-selling lists around the world, and some of these can only best be described as Christian pop psychology. Um, I will resist the urge from here on out to refer to it as psychopopology, but, but uh, Dr. Kevin Lehman, you might recognize the name, a popular Christian psychologist and author, has written a series of New York Times best-selling self-help books. His most popular is called Have a New You by Friday. Recognize that name? Have a New You by Friday. He's also written Have a New Child by Friday or Have a New Teenager by Friday, Have a New Husband by Friday. <laughs> uh, full disclosure, I've never actually read them, and I don't really have a desire to either. But, so I will neither endorse them nor dismiss them entirely. But what I want to say is the immense popularity of these books illuminates a couple interesting things. It shows, first, that, that many people are dissatisfied with their life as it is now. Right? Many people are looking for things like this. They are dissatisfied with their life as it is now. Along with that, they have, you, it reveals a corresponding desire that many people have for a renewed life, a new life of sorts. Have a new you by Friday. You ever feel this way? That there is something amiss about your life right now? That there's something wrong with the way things are? That there's something that you think that you must be missing or that you wish you could change a few things about who you are, how you live. Maybe that, that life would be better if you discovered some secret or self-strategy for improvement. I think it's pretty natural for all of us to feel this way at times. We sense that something in our lives is broken. And we need renewal. Maybe, maybe you feel this way today. That you're tired of the way that your life is and something needs to change. This is what this book, Have a New You by Friday, promises to people like us. In the introduction, Dr. Lehman says this. Have a New You by Friday? Is it possible? To tell you the truth, it's a scam. You can have a new you by Wednesday if you do just a few simple things. And then you can have an even better you by Friday. Keep reading and I'll show you how. This is the miracle turnaround you're looking for. I guarantee it. That's a pretty lofty claim. You can count me among the skeptics maybe on that one. However, as we go to God's word today, I'm going to make an even loftier claim, not based on anything that I can do or any self-help book that I can give to you, but instead based on what God's word says that God can do in our lives, okay? It turns out the Bible would agree with the fact that we, as humans, need renewal, we need renewal. And then the Bible is going to hold out the old one way that we can be totally renewed today. In mind, heart, body, spirit. You can have a new you. Okay? And because of what the Bible says, I can guarantee you a quicker turnaround than Friday. 
You may be skeptical, but this is not just pop psychology. This is objective truth from God's word. And what God can do with our hearts is absolutely miraculous. Okay? And it actually has everything to do with Easter, which is what we're celebrating today. If you have a Bible, so we'll do this together. Please turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Okay? Ephesians chapter 4. You're going to take one from the pew in front of you. That's on page 978. We'll get you to Ephesians 4. 978, the Pew Bibles. We believe as we go this that these words are God's words to us. And as such, that they have the power to transform our lives today. So let's pray together towards that end, shall we? Heavenly Father, as we look into the words that you have given us, in your love and your grace. We pray that you would open our eyes, that you would open our hearts. Help us to receive from you. Help us to hear what you have to say to us. And God, I pray that we would leave here changed because of what you've done. That you would be central here. We pray that, um, I pray just that I would disappear and that you would appear this morning. That your word would go forth with power and change our lives. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you've been with us lately, you know that we haven't actually been in the book of Ephesians, have we? (laughs) For a long time. We've been studying our way through the Gospel of Luke, which tells us the story of Jesus. But I thought for for this special occasion, we're going to take a break from Luke for a week, and we're going to jump way ahead in the story. Okay? Very quickly, I'm going to fill you in on the, the context of the passage we're going to read today in Ephesians. Okay? This was written probably around 20 years after Jesus lived on earth, had his ministry, died, and rose again. Okay? So it's after all that, Jesus had ascended back into heaven, and the early church had been born. And one of the early church's greatest leaders was the Apostle Paul, who traveled as a missionary and wrote many letters to churches around the world. And explained, he explained theology to them, explained how it impacted their life, and kept encouraging them in their faith, praying for them, building them up. Ephesians is one such letter, written to the church in the Greek city of Ephesus. And I tell you, sometime you should take a half hour and just sit and read the book of Ephesians. Okay? It is incredible. The first three chapters of Ephesians, uh, the first half of the book, Paul lays this foundation by explaining the good news about Jesus, the the gospel. And this is what must come first. Paul has a habit of doing this, always putting it first. And and say, we need to understand the gospel, the good news of Jesus. We must know and believe in what God did for us by grace through Jesus. The, The last three chapters of Ephesians, the second half of the book, Paul then explains how this gospel should impact our everyday life. How we should live in light of what Jesus has done for us. In our family life, in our work life, in our church life, the gospel impacts and affects everything in our life. Today, we're going to jump right into the middle of this. Okay, Starting in chapter 4, actually in verse 17. Now, I have to warn you, in order 
for there to be good news, there has to be some bad news, right? In order for there to be good news, there has to be some bad news. These verses that we're about to read begin by describing the really bad news about us, okay? So this may sound negative to you or harsh to you. It may even insult some of you. But stick with me, okay? Stick with me through it. I encourage you in this. This is God's word. This is true, and I promise you the good news will come. Okay? Let's read Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 17. Paul says this. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. These aren't very Eastery verses, are they? <laughs> they seem rather dark. And they are. Here's what I think the big idea of these first three verses here, 17 to 19. Here's what I think the big idea of what Paul is saying here is this. That new life in Jesus is brutally necessary because of our sin. Okay, We absolutely need new life in Jesus be renewed in him because of the brutality of our sin. Now, these may not sound much like Easter, but this is actually what led to Easter. Okay? Because this is what led to Good Friday. Our sin is what led Jesus to die for us. It's like dominoes here. And right away, Paul makes it clear that this is serious stuff. Verse 17, he says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord. As the New Living Translation puts it, With the Lord's authority, let me say this. Okay? I testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. You must do this. Now, if you don't know what a a Gentile is, a Gentile is basically any non-Jew. So most people here today, if not all of us, most people here today would be considered Gentiles. Okay, because we're, we're not Jewish by nature. Now, read this verse and think about how countercultural or even crazy this must have sounded to the Ephesians. Because the Ephesians were also non-Jews. They weren't Jews. They were Greeks. They were Gentiles. But Paul is telling them, you must not live like the Gentiles. Huh? (laughs) This would have been equivalent to Paul telling us today, okay? Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as Ottawans do. Or you must no longer walk or live like Canadians do. How does that make any sense? How can we not walk like Gentiles when we are Gentiles? Was Paul saying that we should live in denial of who we really are? Or was he insulting Gentiles? Perhaps 
maybe being a bit ethnocentric here or something? No, he wasn't. It was, it was like Paul was saying, more like this, don't live like the rest of the Gentiles do. Okay? Don't live like the rest of the Gentiles do. What he was doing, he was drawing a line. He was distinguishing between God's people and the world's people. He was like, if Jesus has saved you, you're no longer just any ordinary Gentile. That's what he's saying. Jesus is saved. You're no longer just any ordinary Gentile. We can't live like all our neighbors or our coworkers or our friends do anymore. We have a higher calling now. A calling that really runs against our culture's currents. Now you may think, well, what's wrong with the way most people in our world live? Especially if today you don't consider yourself a follower of Jesus. You may think, well, this is patronizing and insulting. What, what's wrong with the way that I live? Well, Paul answers this question in depth over the next couple of verses. But, but before you think that I'm singling you out for your issues, I'm not. Okay? This is the way absolutely everyone on earth lives without Jesus in their life. This is the way that all of us have lived, every person in this room, including me, okay? Read with me, verse 17 again. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their mind. So there's issue number one. There's something about the way we think that is futile. There's something wrong or meaningless about our beliefs, or our mindsets, or worldviews, okay? No longer doing the futility of their minds, verse 18, they are darkened in their understanding. Issue number two, our understanding is darkened, something we don't understand, okay? Alienated from the life of God. Alienate, so there's issue number three, we're alienated from the life of God. So whatever this life of God is, which we'll get to in a minute, we don't got it. It's far away from us. We're alienated from it, not even familiar with it. Okay? Again, verse 18 in the middle. We're alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. So issue number four, similar to the first couple, there's some kind of ignorance in us. We don't even realize that the way we're living is wrong. Because of the ignorance that is in them, Due to their hardness of heart. So issue number five. Our hearts are hard. We're not willing to consider our bad state. We might be, we might be very happy living the way that we're living. We might not want to change. And we've hardened our hearts and firmly resisted and firmly resolved that we don't need God in our lives. It means that we have a hard heart. Okay? Verse 19 goes on, they have become callous. Okay, that's issue number six. Because of our hardened hearts, we become callous, not sensitive to God moving around us or prompting us or convicting us. We don't feel convicted by sin anymore. Okay, nothing wrong pains us or even phases us. 
Okay? They have become callous, verse 19, and have given themselves up to sensuality. Okay? Given themselves up to sensuality. In our callousness, we have done this. Nothing is stopping us from doing whatever we want to do. And what we want to do, most naturally, is to indulge in whatever pleasures this world has to offer. That's sensuality. Whether that be food or drink or drugs or laziness or lust or sexual immorality, sex outside of God's design, whatever it is, this is the way we're living in our callousness. They become callous, have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. There's issue number eight. Okay? We are greedy to practice every kind of impurity. What a picture. This is saying we deeply want to be impure. We are greedy for it. We want to sin. Now, of course, there are more than just eight issues with our human condition. But even only these eight give us a depressing picture of what's wrong with the way we live. We live in futility, darkness, alienation, ignorance, hardness of heart, callousness, sensuality, greediness, and impurity. Perhaps the most depressing one of all of those, I think, is the third one that talks about being alienated from the life of God. See, if we don't have the life of God, what do you think we have? The opposite. We have death. Death is really the ultimate consequence of the way we live. Not just physical death now, but eternal spiritual death in hell. Romans 6.23 talks about the wages or the punishment of sin being death. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God, and thus we all deserve to die. Now, if you doubt this bleak assessment of the state of the human nature, I encourage you to just look around our world. Really, read the news. You don't have to be a pessimist to see that our world has gone to hell in a handbasket. It's university students getting stabbed at house parties. Mothers drowning their own children in bathtubs. Predators, even relatives of people sexually abusing young children. Rampant sexual immorality everywhere you look. Families broken all over the place. Bombings at Marathon, socially acceptable abortions, shootings at kindergartens, nations warring or threatening war against other nations. Happy Easter. We may not be murderers or terrorists or rapists, but we are all offenders. We're all sinners before God. Offended God, justly destined for hell. Do we ever need new life? Do we ever? We, we need out 
of this vicious cycle of sin and death. We desperately and we brutally need a Savior. We all need renewal. We need Jesus. I was working at home this week and working away, and when I was very startled to see this huge bug scurry across our basement floor. <laughs> it was big, I tell you. <laughs> and I, it was this big centipede, and it, it crawled quickly across the floor to hide underneath this couch. What do you think I did? No, I didn't scream. <laughs> I immediately halted what I was doing, okay, immediately halted, and I called for my wife to bring me some shoes, right? And I immediately went on a bug hunt because I knew that if I didn't kill that bug, it would scare the living daylights out of someone else (laughs) coming along later. And who knows, maybe it would breed under that couch and (laughs) have an army of bugs soon. (laughs) But my point is, as soon as I knew that there was a problem, As soon as I knew that it was there, I immediately tried to fix the problem. And in a similar way, but with much greater urgency, there is something wrong in our hearts. Something wrong there. It's not a bug, but sin has invaded. And really, sin has bred babies. And it's wreaked havoc in our lives. So what should we do? We notice that something is wrong in our heart. I'll tell you, we shouldn't ignore it. We shouldn't just push it aside, dismiss it. We can't ignore it. We need to find a solution right away. Because if our sin problem goes unchecked, it will only lead to terrible consequences. Okay? We don't like to hear things like this. I admit that. I don't like to talk about sin. Okay? It's not pleasant. It's not fun. But it's very necessary. We need to see and understand the evil that dwells in every one of our hearts before we can see the incredible grace that God shows us despite our evil. That though we need for God's forgiveness and restoration, we don't deserve it at all. That's grace. We have to see the depths of the bad news before we see the heights and the glory of the good news. Okay? Fortunately for us, this depressing passage takes a big turn in verse 20. The entire passage actually turns on verse 20. It starts with a big but. Okay, verse 20, we'll start in verse 19 just to get the context. They become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Exclamation mark. But... Christ, okay, this is the good news, that in spite of our depravity, renewal is available. available. Mercy 
is available. Okay? Richard Sibis says, The depths of our misery can never fall below the depths of mercy. Amen. And here's the glorious truth we'll see in the second part of this passage. The new life in Jesus is beautifully available because of Jesus' death and resurrection. Because of the gospel, new life in Jesus is amazingly available to anyone willing to receive it. New life in Jesus is beautifully available because of Jesus' death and resurrection. Now, I'm going to read these verses in a second, but this point may not be explained in detail in this passage, but it is very much implied. Okay? It actually doesn't mention Jesus' death or resurrection in these verses, in those exact words. But it talks about us having an old self and a new self. Okay? The new life that Jesus gives us. And we know conclusively from elsewhere that this new life comes only through Jesus' cross and empty grave. We only receive this new life through Jesus. Okay, so let's read this together. Verse 20. But that is not the way you learn Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So, what these verses tell us is, there is a new life. There's a new life that we can hear and learn about and be taught about. Many of us have been. Okay? And there, these are all metaphors for our salvation that is found only in Christ. Once we didn't know, but now we can know. We can have new life. We can be renewed. But this new life, you might notice, is not automatically given to everyone. It's a a gift that must be accepted. In Ephesians 4 here, Paul is speaking to already saved Christians. But he acknowledges that not everyone may be a follower of Jesus yet. He says, this is not the way you learned in Christ, verse 21, assuming that you have, heard, you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. So assuming, meaning that if you don't know about Jesus yet, if you haven't been saved yet, then this doesn't apply to you yet. Okay? You might be here today and you don't have a new life yet. You're still stuck in the old sinful, destructive way of things. But this is where the truths of Good Friday and Easter come so beautifully into the story. Since we're jumping into the middle of a passage, in the middle of a book, we can easily miss this. Okay? To see this, we're, we actually have to look back earlier in Ephesians to the, to the foundation that Paul has been laying. So I want you to keep your finger in chapter 4, but flip back a few pages with me to chapter 1. We're going to quickly skim over some of these mind-bending, world-rocking truths, okay? But we're just going to look at the foundation that Paul has laid so far, and it's all about Christ. It's all about his death and his resurrection, okay? In, verse, in chapter 1... 
verse 3, Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Then he goes on the next few verses to talk about the numerous ways that God has blessed us in his grace. Even long before Jesus came to earth, died and rose again, it was God's plan to save us from our sin. Okay? Verse 7 says, In him, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood. There's the cross. Okay? Jesus taking our sin on his back, shedding his blood for us. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Later in in chapter 1, Paul talks about our darkened minds having been enlightened. Verse 16 says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Okay, what have our eyes been open to? The power of Christ's resurrection. Okay, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you? What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power, the power that raised Christ from the dead, of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. That's the power of Christ's resurrection. Chapter 2 brings up the old self again. Starts talking about how we were all dead in our sins. Okay, like chapter 4 described for us. Verse 1 in chapter 2 says this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. Again, just depressing. We, we might as well have all been in the tomb ourselves with Jesus. We were dead, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the minds, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Not a pretty picture. But, verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved. So we were dead, but if we believed in Jesus' death and new life, then we might as well have exited the tomb with Jesus on Easter Sunday. Chapter 3 goes on to say that everyone can receive this grace, even Gentiles. Okay, it says this is good news for us. 
as Gentiles. Verse 6 in chapter 3, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And then Paul ends chapter 3 with what can only be described as an epic prayer. Verse 14, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Again, the power that raised Christ from the dead, strengthened with power, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love, the same love that drove Jesus to the cross in the first place, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. You see just how incredible that good news of Jesus is? You see how his love was displayed, his power was displayed, his grace was displayed to us. And then Paul begins chapter 4 by telling us to therefore walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've received. Or to which you've been called. Starting to see how Jesus' death and Jesus' resurrection drastically affect what we're reading in chapter 4. That this is the new life to which we've been called. The futility of our minds died with Christ on the cross. Okay? The, the darkness of our understanding, the, the willful ignorance in us died with Christ. Our callousness, our sensuality, our greed, our impurity have been forgiven at the cross. Our our minds, our spirits, our bodies, our hearts, they can be washed clean by the blood of Jesus. And our alienation from the life of God ended when Christ burst forth from the grave. If we've believed in Jesus, he's saying, we've been raised with him in his resurrection. Listen to what Paul says about this in Romans 6, another book he wrote. Romans 6 verse 4 says, we were buried therefore with Christ by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Newness of life. That sounds like language from Ephesians 4, doesn't it? Romans 6 goes on to say, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Back in Ephesians 4, Paul tells us what this new life means for us today. So that's the context and what the new life means. I mean, we've looked at a lot of truth today, but how does this apply to our lives? Well, let's look. Verse 20 again. But this is not the way you learned Christ, 
assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. How should we be taught? Verse 22, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. In other words, we can't live like we used to. Okay? That was our old life. That was the old self. But everything changed because of Jesus' death and resurrection. Everything changed. Even once we're Christians, we still have an old self. He's speaking to Christians here. But we need to consciously learn to live in our new self. To put on the new self. Put off the old self. When I look at some of the clothes that I wore when I was younger, I cringe. (laughs) Some of you do that. (laughs) You're looking back at old yearbook photos or something. What was I wearing? <laughs> even, even sometimes when I look in the mirror now, I cringe. But, but anyway, when I look at what I wore, say, back in high school, I was usually a good five to ten years behind what fashions were of the day. And I wore a lot of really baggy T-shirts that were two sizes too big on me. I wore a lot of uh, mom-style jeans <laughs> or shorts that were too short. Or I, was, I wore socks like I was afraid to show my legs. And all the way up to my knees. <laughs> and to be honest, at that age, I didn't care much about what I wore. Obviously so, right? But say I were to find some of my old clothes lying around today. And I were to put them on. And, I, I, and you'd all see me in these old clothes. And you'd be confused, right? <laughs> Pastor Matt, what in the world are you wearing? (laughs) Well, what if I told you, oh, I found these clothes and I got nostalgic, right? I I mean, I know they're pretty unfashionable and unprofessional and dirty and outdated and maybe they got holes in them, but I want to wear them. (laughs) You'd think I'd hit my head last night and (laughs) it's off my rocker, right? But what's the problem? with wearing old clothes like that. What's wrong with it? The problem is that the mid-90s, 13-year-old me doesn't exist anymore. That's in my past. I'm a different person now. I've changed, hopefully for the better. But in a much greater way, This is what Paul is talking about here. It's like he's saying, stop wearing your old clothes. Stop wearing them. Take them off. Okay? Start putting on your new self, your new clothes, the new clothes that God has given you. Right? Your old self doesn't really exist anymore. You've been changed, so live like it. Verse 22, read it with this in mind, okay? Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and be renewed in the spirits of your minds, and put on the new self, 
created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Every day, we need to consciously put off our old self and put on our new self. Our minds need to be renewed. And in the process, it says we start looking more like God. That our new selves were created to be in the likeness of God. Righteous and holy. So what does that look like? Well, that question is answered in the passage that immediately follows. So I'm going to do something unique here. If you're a Christian, if if you've already believed in Jesus' death and resurrection to save you from your sins, you've already repented, I want you to take the next minute and just read verses 25 to 32. Yeah, I'm not going to read it out loud. Just read those verses. Let God's word challenge you about how you're living now. Okay? Make it a point. Take something from those verses to apply in your life this week. This is putting on the new self, taking off the old self. So as I speak to everyone else for a minute, go ahead and read those verses, verses 25 to 32. If you do not yet have new life in Jesus, because you're still living the old normal life, the main question you should have is how do we receive this new life that Jesus how do we get it? How are we renewed? How do, how do we receive these new clothes? How can, we, how can our lives be renewed? How can we be changed and, and transformed for the better? Jesus himself answered this question during his time on earth. He told in John 3, verse 3, he told a man named Nicodemus, he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So in order to receive new life, we must be born again. We must be reborn. We all once had brand new life as babies. Now we need it again. And we're like, well, what does that mean? How is that possible that we're born again? So with Nicodemus, he was confused. And in John 3, verse 4, Nicodemus said to Jesus, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? But Jesus clarified, and I'm going to paraphrase this. He said, No, it's nothing that you can do in your own flesh. Okay? You can't do it. God's Spirit has to do it. We must be born of God. And then Jesus went on to tell Nicodemus, and you'll recognize this, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. It really is that simple. We can't be reborn on our own. But God has already done the work. He sent Jesus to die for us, to die for our sins on that first Good Friday. And Jesus came back from the dead on the first Easter Sunday. Also, our sin would be paid for and that we could receive his new resurrection life, that we could be raised from the deadness of our life. All we have to do, it says, is to believe in Jesus, believe that he is who he says he was, that he did what Scripture tells us he did. First John 5, 1 says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Now, true belief invariably includes us turning from sin and changing our ways. 
We must repent and continue to repent of our sin. And that's what we're, we studied today in Ephesians 4. Jesus changes our lives in every way. Some of you may hear all that, though, and object to this teaching. Say, maybe it's too far-fetched or it's too unbelievable. You may think, there's no way that some random guy died and actually came back to life. But I caution you. The evidence for the resurrection is astounding and compelling. I can provide you with some today, if, if you're curious about this, after the service. But if the tomb, okay, bear with me. If the tomb is really empty, and if Jesus really did rise from the dead, that demands a response from you besides mere dismissal. Demands a response. Either you believe that he rose from the dead, or you don't. But your eternal destiny depends on how you answer that question. See Romans 10.9. Others of you today, you may not object to it, but you may be intrigued by it. Curious that Jesus has piqued your curiosity today. And I'd encourage you, don't ignore that. Don't ignore that curiosity. That could be God's spirit working on you. Seek out the answers that you, that, for the questions that you have. Look closer at the evidence for Jesus. Again, I'd love to speak with you after the service today. Jesus is worth investigating. Okay? And no matter who you are, or where you've been, or what you've done, like I promised earlier, your life can be completely renewed by Jesus today. Some of you may be ready to take this step today, this step of belief. You want to say, yes, I believe this. I believe that Jesus died my death and that he rose again. I resolve to leave my sin, to live differently as a follower of Jesus. If you do this, God will transform your heart today. Become like Jesus. God will renew your life. He'll give you new life. And you'll be born again. You'll be born into a new family. And a new life. Not necessarily an easy life. But a rewarding life. A fulfilling life. Blessed by God. You'll be forgiven. Freed. Cleansed. Restored. Loved by God. God will really, he'll do all this for you because he loved you. Because he loved you enough to send Jesus to die for you. He wants you to know him, to love him, to become like him. For every one of our guests here today, whether you were invited by a friend or got a flyer in the mailbox or maybe came to the Easter party yesterday, walking off the street, whatever the case may be, uh, we do have a gift for you as you leave. Um, you'll receive a little great little booklet called The Story. It's not much at all, but I encourage you to read it, okay? I hope it blesses you. It's just a little gift from us. Um, and if you have any questions about it, make sure you come talk to us. Come find us. Find us online, whatever the case may be. Um, but we pray that, with, that God's story would change your story today. In a minute, I'm going to go backstage with a couple individuals who want the world to know that they have believed.
They want to tell you today that they've repented of their sins and believed in Jesus as their Savior. They believe that Jesus died and rose again in order to bring them to God. And they'll declare that God has brought them new life through Jesus as they walk through the waters of baptism. If anyone else wants to join them, come with me like right after I pray, okay? But I encourage everyone that is here, whether you have known Jesus for years or this is entirely new to you, make this Easter, make today a special day, okay? Make it a stake in the ground kind of day, a, an out with the old and in with the new day. Be refreshed. Be renewed today. Have a new you today or live like a new you today. Right? And to the one who believes, God promises to, to sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. It's from Ezekiel. 2 Corinthians 5.17, of course, says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Cleansed, freed, redeemed, recreated, renewed. That's the promise of Easter. Let's pray. God, we pray this morning that if anyone here is wrestling with these things, that you would show yourself to them this morning. Show your love to them. Show your power to them. Show your mercy to them. We pray that they would run to your cross, that they would see your empty tomb and celebrate what you've done for them. pray that we'd all do this this morning. Help us to be blown away afresh by your amazing love for us and what you've done to redeem us and to, to save us from the power of sin forever. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.